You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This show will be talking Champions League, Barbie, American soccer innovation, uh, Kissinger, Blackberry, Pepe, Xavi, MLS MVPs, Predators, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how you doing on this uh, Thursday, November 30th in the year 2023? Doing well. You are farther away than usual. Yes, we are. We, we, we continue to be in our new studios, but along with, you know, when you move into a new house, sometimes you say, hey, listen, not only a new house, but let's buy new furniture to, uh, to have it go with the new house. So we are in our new house. We have new furniture for those that are watching this show, and there's so many of you out that are that are watching, whether it's on Spotify or YouTube or any of the other uh, platforms out there. We appreciate that, uh, that you can see us in all our glory, and you can see that we have new desks. Now, it was, does take us a little further away from each other, but it's certainly an upgrade. we got all the bells and whistles and all the wonderful men and women that work behind the scenes here have put this together. It's also... Uh, module, so it can change with uh, whatever we desire in terms of number of people and stuff like that. So very beautiful, probably very expensive desk that we have right here. So I'll try not to scratch it up. Uh, have you watched anything or seen anything interesting, my friend? I have finished part one of the final season of The Crown. They've split it up into two parts. Part one was four episodes. I knocked those out. This was the Princess Diana dying uh, part of the series. And so presumably... Part two will be the aftermath of that. It does sound like they're going to take us pretty close to present time with Prince William and Kate Middleton. So it's going to be like that space ball scene. Whatever happens now, happens now. How did they handle the the, the death? Was it Did they do the whole car accident and the, the chase from the paparazzi and all that kind of stuff? Or did they do that? Or did they just kind of flash to headlines of a newspaper or something? You don't see the actual accident. You just see the car speeding away. And then you hear this crash in the background. Uh, and then the next scene is her in the hospital. Got it. Uh, I got a, a couple of things here. Well, first off, um, you know, we, we come to you, like I said, on Thursday morning. We find out that uh, Henry Kissinger at 100 years old died. And the only reason I bring that up, not necessarily because, you know, I watched anything. And um, for those that don't know, Henry Kissinger was hugely influential and involved in the 1994 World Cup coming to the U.S. And uh, I I don't vividly remember this. It had I had to be reminded years later that 
the first game that we played in 94 in the Pontiac Silverdome, rest in peace, Pontiac Silverdome, Henry Kissinger actually showed up in the locker room before we went out to take on uh, Sweden there in the Silverdome. I had completely blocked it out of my mind. Uh, it just shows how focused we, we, uh, we were. But that's my, my Henry Kissinger um, uh, story, I guess, if you will, and only interaction that we have. And he was you know, wonderfully excited and, uh, and kind in that moment. And look, I know he's got a lot of layers when it comes to Kissinger. We're not going to get into uh, all of that, but 100-year run, that's pretty good for anybody. Uh, I'm sure uh, a lot of people out there would take, take it, and from a, uh, uh, a mental capacity standpoint, still functioning at a very, very high level. And uh, we owe a tremendous amount in terms of the influence and ultimately the result of getting the 1994 World Cup to him. Uh, okay, a couple of things that I did watch. Uh, and I, I watched this a couple weeks ago, but it is, I think it's just called Blackberry. And it is on Amazon, I think, right now. And it is a, uh, a drama. It's not, a, it's not a, a documentary, but it's a drama relative to the rise and the fall of BlackBerry. Did you ever have a BlackBerry? I did, briefly, yeah. I did, too. I mean, way back in the day, we got Blackberries when I was working for different clubs, starting up there in San Jose with the, uh, the earthquakes. And at that point, we had the, uh, the rotary thing on the side and all that. And it was insane you know they, they eventually got called crackberries and stuff like that but they did a really good job of bringing you from this little computer company up in canada where this all started and how it became big another case study a lot of these things are kind of case studies uh that are coming out right now especially with the internet boom and everything um there are a lot of them uh, that are case studies on how not to run a business or the rise and fall of a lot of these businesses going. And they're, they're, they're always fascinating. I think they did a really good job uh, when it comes to that. And then I finally got around to seeing Barbie. Have you seen Barbie? I have, yeah. I, I couldn't finish it, Masi. I mean, I was watching it. Uh, truth be told, I was watching it on the plane, and I know that brings up different types of things when, it, when, when you're on the plane. But I, I maintain that when you're on the plane, I will continue to watch anything, even if it's not that good. I could not finish Barbie. I didn't think it was interesting. Um, and look, it's, you know, I'm all about girl power and all that kind of stuff, but I just thought that it became something that ultimately was, was unfunny, uninteresting. I mean, Margot, I don't know what her name is, but she, beautiful woman. Margot so that's, Robbie, that's all yeah. fine and well. Uh, and the other guy, the uh, blonde uh, the guy, he's a good-looking guy too. So good-looking people all over, this, uh, all over this movie. That's all fine and well, but that only gets you so far. So I was, I was disappointed. I thought it was going to have more, more fun in it, and it, it, it didn't. So it fell flat for me. But I know it made a tremendous amount of money, and I know a lot of people uh, loved it. My kids saw it and, and all that kind of stuff. You said you haven't seen it. I have seen oh, it. We have seen it. Yeah. I can't remember. I think we were in uh, Australia, right? Yes, I saw it there. I saw both Oppenheimer and Barbie in, uh, in Sydney. <laughs> That's right. You, you did the compare and contrast of the yeah. two. And? Loved Oppenheimer. You loved Barbie, Oppenheimer. I thought, was okay. All right. Well, I don't even know how it ends because I didn't even uh, finish it. All right. Should we light this candle, my friend? Let's do Where it. Where should we start? Match day five of the UEFA Champions League is in the books. Lots to talk about. We'll begin... Tuesday at the Parc de Prince, where PSG hosted Newcastle. Alexander Isak gave Newcastle a 1-0 lead in the first half. They held on to that lead until deep in second half stoppage time. And then PSG was awarded a penalty after a ball ricocheted off Livramento's knee and hit his arm. Initially wasn't awarded a penalty, but uh, VAR told the referee he needed to take another look at it. He did and whistled a penalty. Mbappe converted. 
1-1 final. That penalty decision generating a lot of controversy. A lot of people disagreed with it, including apparently UEFA because the head VAR from that game was also supposed to work the Real Sociedad-Salzburg match on Wednesday, and he got taken off of that. The match referee wasn't scheduled for any games on Wednesday, so his reckoning might come on match day six. So what did you make of it? Well, first off, I think the the context in which we now assess Newcastle is important, all right? Obviously, a a big club in terms of support and history, but it has now entered the potentially elite clubs of the world, given the backing, given the money that they have, and given the the aspirational type of situation that we see see with them. So this was a it was a big game against PSG, which we all know has kind of achieved that or done that to two different levels of success, but it's still PSG with arguably greatest player playing the game uh, in Mbappe on the other side. And to your point, this, this was a moment that they kind of wanted to plant a flag. And it was, in their view, and I'm talking about Newcastle fans, stolen away from them because of this, uh, because of this decision. Uh, the, the, league was, the, the lead was justified. Nice goal, by the way. Um, wonderful work at the top of the box there. A- and then this goal happens. I watched it, and I, and I watched it again. And I know um, <laughs> Alan Shearer was out of his mind uh, and could not fathom how this could be allowed to happen in a game. And look, he holds his Newcastle near and dear. I get it. I'm sure Warren Barton was of the same thinking when it comes to that. I looked at it, and in this day and age, Mossy, I just, I, I would play and I watch the game with the idea that if it hits your arm or hand, it's a foul, okay? Now, I know in, when it comes to the law, that is not necessarily true. But in this instance, player makes himself bigger because of his arms. And in doing so, not only does it hit his arm, but it also stops the ball from going through to the other side where none other than Kylian Mbappe is sitting. And you can see him immediately raise his hand and scream and yell as players will, as players will do. So I am not as aggrieved as many when it comes to, it comes to this call. And again, in 2023, with what you have seen, whether you are a player, whether you are a fan, or whether you are a pundit, I guess, this should not surprise you. And then you say, well, okay, what is the player supposed to do? Well, first off, recognize that if and when it gets into the 18 and this happens and it hits your arm or hand, it has the potential to be called. Okay. So buyer beware, if you will. Secondly, don't let them get into the box. Easier said than done against a, a team like PSG. But if you're going to foul and if you're going to risk by playing with your arms out, make sure it's done outside the box. And then when you do get in the box, do what all players, well, all smart and good players out there and even great players out there have done and have adapted to doing, which is to play with your arms behind your back and make it very, very clear that you understand that you are risking right now. And I have yet to see somebody with their arms behind their back, all right, be dinged. And so, and, and you'll say, well, it's, it's how are you supposed to slide or how are you supposed to play? Adjust, adapt or die. And this is the new game and this is what's happening. So I have... Not no sympathy, but I have little sympathy for everybody whining about this call. 
And the fact that it hit another part of his body first does not in and of itself negate the handball. It still comes down to whether the arm was in an unnatural position. So it is an interpretive decision. But, but that's my point, Mossy. The natural position for a defender in 2023 now, the way I look at it, is with your arms behind your back. Now, there are people that say, oh, that's ridiculous and that kind of Fine. If you want to change, change the laws, which I'm actually for, because I think it should just be, doesn't matter, natural, unnatural, intentional, unintentional, doesn't really matter. If it hits your hand or it hits your arm, boom, it can be called. Incidentally, the match referee and the head VAR, very highly rated by FIFA, they worked the World Cup final, France-Argentina. So the fact that the head VAR is getting punished by UEFA is interesting, and we'll see what happens with the match do, referee. Do you, think that they are, do you think that they're actually punishing them, or do you think that they are protecting them if you will. maybe it's that yeah, yeah. I, I i think so i don't I, I feel like the conversation is listen i don't want to do this but i gotta do this i'm gonna take some heat off of you and we're gonna look okay and we'll live to fight another day it's not gonna hurt your record we're still gonna get big games going forward all right uh what now also in group f dortmund with a 3-1 away win over ac milan Giroud had a penalty saved by Kobel, then royce converted from the penalty spot chukwesi made it 1-1 but then Jamie Bino Gittens 2-1, and then Karim Adeyemi on an absolute howler by Mike Mignon scored the third. On the American front, Yunus Musa suspended due to yellow card accumulation. Pulisic started, went all 90 minutes. Gio Reyna, an unused substitute. All right, so from an American front, and I know that we look at things through these uh, through the red, white, and blue colored uh, lenses here. This is this is not good in that Gio didn't even get on the field. And from a Pulisic perspective, this is not good because his team didn't win and now they stand at the bottom of their, uh, their group as opposed to Dortmund, which from a Dortmund perspective, they're sitting pretty. And this is, this is not only good, this is great for Dortmund right now. And they are flying. And this is not a small type of victory. This is a, this is a big type of victory, uh, a victory on the road. And so I think for Dortmund, great. For Gio, not great. But again, We've, we say this week after week when it comes to Gio. You wonder if Gio will still be around for the knockout stages because I think <laughs> oh. he looks over and sees Pulisic playing all 90 minutes and sees the benefits potentially of a move because Pulisic was stuck at Chelsea in a similar situation that Reyna finds himself in now at Dortmund. If you were Gio Reyna, would you want a, a midseason move or would you want a, a summer move? Would you want it as quickly as possible to get it done? I think at this point move you have on. to consider it in January. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in terms of Group F, uh, Dortmund are through. Uh, PSG in second place. Uh, Dortmund host PSG in the last match day. Newcastle host AC Milan. If PSG win, they go through. If they draw, it opens the door for Newcastle. If they lose, it opens the door for either Newcastle or AC Milan. So Oof. Uh, we transitioned to early on Wednesday. Sevilla hosted PSV. Sevilla had a 2-0 second half lead. The goals by Sergio Ramos and Nesri. But then Lucas Ocampos got himself sent off. That turned the tide. PSV staged a stunning comeback. Serginho Dest assisted the 2-1 goal. Then an own goal made it 2-2. And then Ricardo Pepe in stoppage time makes it 3-2. Final PSV off to the round of 16. Our Doug McIntyre, minutes after this match ended, dropped a pretty big take on Twitter. Uh, he had this to say. This is exactly the type of goal on the biggest stage in the club game that could vault Ricardo Pepe over Fulladin Balogun as the U.S.'s first-choice striker. Programming note, we are going to have uh, Doug McIntyre on this pod. Uh, he's uh, coming out with a year-in-review article. Um, 
for the U.S. national team, which discusses this and all sorts of other matters. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, what is your thought on Doug's tweet, Pepe's goal, et cetera? I, I love Doug, but I don't, I don't understand why this changes the equation. Having said that, even this last window, we talked about the fact that um, everybody is susceptible. Everybody, you know, there are no... Uh, there are no sacred cows when it comes to this national team, or at least there shouldn't be. But when it comes to Balogun, he is going to give, be given as much rope as possible, and he is going to be given every single opportunity. And I think that that is, that is fair given, uh, given his talent. But even in this last window, we started to talk about, before Pepe did this, hey, has Pepe evolved and matured? I think the answer is yes, as a player, um, to the point where Greg Berhalter, because ultimately that's all that matters, looks at him in a very different context and in a very different way. And maybe that's what Doug is trying to get to here. We'll, we'll ask him to, to, to delve into this, uh, into this more. But it's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for Pepe. It's a good thing for the, uh, for the national team. But I don't think that he comes strutting in to uh, the next camp that they are involved with and the expectation that is, is, is that he is starting over Balogun. What do you and think? Balog, I remember, just scored against PSG sure. uh, the previous weekend. So we've gone from the U.S. having no strikers performing in Europe to having two now that are doing pretty well. So it's actually a good problem to have. It's a good problem to have, but, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the age-old saying of form is fallacy. And in this case, it, it can be. So just because it's, I would rather have players playing and playing well than not playing well. But it doesn't automatically mean that they are going to do it for the national team, or it doesn't automatically mean that they are better in terms of a starting position than somebody else, uh, some, somebody else going forward. But I love the way that he took this goal. Uh, if you watch as a play develops over that left-hand side, I, I love that, first off, the ground that he makes up uh, was wonderful. And then his adjustment to, to, uh, to head it in. Obviously, it's a big goal, so that's, that must feel awesome in that, uh, in that moment. But the way that the goal actually came... I thought that's that's a real good thing, and certainly, this is this is good for Pepe and good for the U.S. Uh, going forward. Also on Wednesday, Galatasaray hosted Manchester United. United jumped out to a 2-0 lead, Garnacho and Bruno Fernandez. Then we got the first of Andre Onana's howlers on a Hakim Ziyech free kick, which made it 2-1. McTominay restored the two-goal lead. And then Onana with an even worse mistake on another Ziyech free kick, 3-2. And then minutes later, Galatasaray equalized, so it finished 3-3. Onana the GOAT. On, uh, United remained last in their group. Eric Ten Hag's post-game press conferences are... Uh, they, nothing is said uh, by him. And look, I get coaches are going to support their players. They're going to support their teams. Uh, but again, there's nothing interesting, enlightening said, uh, let alone provocative, uh, about this team. And <laughs> I mean, I, I know there's revisionist history when it comes to De Gea because De Gea was awesome. Remember, I mean, this was years ago when he was literally keeping Manchester United in uh, an, an area that was at least respectable. And there were points that you could co all, co contribute completely to him. So goalkeepers are very, very important. But just, just saying, well, this goalkeeper sucks and we should have back to hey or, or, or anybody else out doesn't necessarily change things. But at some point, Mossy, every week when we come on and there's something that's done, either a howler or now in the context of within howlers even a save that hey a 
quote unquote world class goalkeeper playing for one of the elite, another quote, elite teams in the world, you got to save some of these things. There's a reason why you're there. Incidentally, I'm old fashioned, so I just use goat in the negative sense. There's a whole generation of people now yes. that think I just called Onana the greatest goalkeeper of all time. So I'd, I'd like to clarify that's not what I'm saying. Yeah, here. he's, he's <laughs> definitely not the, the greatest player of all time. All right. But it is interesting because United don't have a sporting director, so they've given Ten Hag a lot of power when it comes to transfers, and he's brought in a lot of, quote-unquote, his guys. And so you can't even say, well, it's not Ten Hag's fault the goalkeeper messed up, but it's the goalkeeper that he compelled United to spend big money on who he coached at Ajax, so it's a bit of a reunion. And so whatever way you look at it, it doesn't reflect well on Ten Hag. Uh, United, as I said, last in their group. So the deal here is that match day six, Copenhagen will host Galatasaray. If there's a winner in that game, United are eliminated. No matter United, what they do. Yes, United have to hope that that game ends in a draw. And then if they beat Bayern Munich at home on match day six, they would go through. The one silver lining is Bayern have already clinched first place in the group. They have nothing to play for. So I actually think no. the United winning at home over Bayern is quite plausible, but then they need to get a draw in the other game. And if they don't go through, they go to Europa? Uh, if they finish third. Wow. All right. Uh, let's finish it up here, right? What do we got? Uh, one more Champions League game. Real Madrid, a 4-2 home win over Napoli. Rodrigo with another great goal. But the story, Jude Bellingham with a diving header. Make that 15 goals in 16 games. 4-4 four and four in the Champions League. And then late on, a perfect assist to Joselu, who had been struggling. The fans were getting on him. And so Jude Bellingham, you could tell, wanted to get Joselu back on track. He did. What a player. What a leader. Huh? I mean, look, I saw the, uh, the promo that we did for the, uh, the upcoming Euro draw. And it gets back to this debate that we talked about a few uh, weeks ago on the pod about, you know, if you have to pick one player from these teams, England, who are you picking? Uh, with what Harry Kane is doing, I think it's certainly justified in our picking him. But, I mean, this is this is insane uh, in, in the best possible way, what Jude Bellingham is, is doing. So not only is he continuing to score goals when many have said that this has got to end, but um, even with all of the attention and all the pressure to do it, he still delivers. Now, that's a mark of not just a great player. That's a mark of a star. And that's what we associate with the elite of the elite in that, all right, arms folded now. Can you do it when everybody's watching and everybody's expecting you to do it? And he continually uh, does that. Not only is he, is, he, is he playing well, but he's looking good. And he's appealing to older guys like myself in terms of what, he, uh, what he's wearing. Did you see these uh, throwback predators that he, uh, that he is sporting? We got a picture of him up here. Now, for those that are a little young, the Predator is and, and was a brand from Adidas that came out. And in my estimation, it's the best shoe that I ever wore um, and that has ever been made. And I, I vividly remember back in what would have been 90, uh, 92, 93, going to the Rose Bowl and being introduced to the Predator and what was going to be the Predator by um, Craig Johnston. Uh, who was a um, former player in England, born in South Africa, but he's an Australian parents and everything. And he was hugely influential in creating this new technology that was the Predator. And I remember I had bigger feet than him, but he still let me try on the prototypes and I squeezed in to get the feel of what they, what they were. And as the years progressed, 
new and new versions of it uh, of it came about. Some better than others, but there was a sweet spot where, uh, you know, 96, 97, 98, that it was the best fitting shoe and the best performing shoe that I ever had. And that they are coming back in kind of a throwback style here and that it's on this elite player in Bellingham. Oh, warms the cockles of my redheaded American heart uh, and my feet, I guess, if you will, that once wore Predators. Where should we go now, Mossy? So we have 12 teams through to the knockout stage of the Champions League. Four spots still up for grabs. Napoli fighting to advance. Their fate will be decided match day six against Braga. Napoli also have a massive Serie A game at the weekend. They will host league leaders Inter. This is first against fourth. Napoli, incidentally, with a new coach, uh, Walter Mazzari, recently replaced Rudy Garcia. So we'll see what they can do against Inter. Uh, Second place, Juventus are away to Monza. Timmy Weah getting close, but not expected to play yet. Uh, McKinney is expected to start. And then third place, AC Milan will host Frosinoni, Pulisic, and Musa, both expected to feature in that one. Overall thoughts on the weekend in Syria? Well, it's, it's kind of David versus Goliath type of matchups, um, except for the Napoli Inter one, which is going to be fun. Uh, Frosinone, um, are they new? They, they, they came up this year, right? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's nice to say. It's fun to say, right? Frosinone. Yeah. So, I mean, I would expect both Juventus and, Fros- and AC Milan to find ways to win. The Napoli Inter one? <sighs> Napoli at home, right? So I'll, I'll, just, I'll go with Napoli at home. But some tasty, tasty matchups when it comes to Serie A. Matchups that I whipped through very quickly, so I, I kept them back there in the control room. They got to be quick switching the, hey, the listen, board. You got to keep ma- up with Mossy. Yes. Uh, we transition to England. Uh, Liverpool will host Fulham. You know, I was thinking about this. From a Yanks abroad perspective, our focus this season has been much more on Serie A, mm-hmm. to a lesser extent on the Bundesliga, uh, even PSV Eindhoven. We've kind of taken our eyes off of England because Tyler Adams has been hurt, hasn't played for Bournemouth. Matt Turner lost his starting job at Forest. But you still have Ream and Robinson quietly chugging along at Fulham. Yeah, I mean, I think we're taking them for granted, maybe, uh, in terms of their consistency. And I know Reem had the, uh, the arm injury last year that uh, finished his campaign. But they are good players, um, and they are certainly starters you know, Reem's going to be interesting as we go through 26, but certainly Jedi is, is going to be there. And there's nobody that's really come up and challenged them yet. And that they are not only starting, but consistently starting and playing very, very well in the EPL, that says, that says how good they are. But when you really look at it in terms of the national team and what we want to do, which is ultimately win a World Cup, are, are they limited? Is this, you know, as the old movie, is this as good as it gets, Mossy? Is Jedi. And if it is, is that enough? Because I, I watch Jedi often, and he does some incredible, incredible things. And then he can follow it up, as I said before, <laughs> where he looks like he's just started playing uh, the game. And when it comes to Reem, we know that Father Time eventually will catch up. Thankfully, he's kind of adjusted his game where he's able to do things and doesn't get caught out and doesn't put himself in difficult situations. But and I, guess, I guess this gets to something that I've been thinking about um, when it comes to the national team. And I just, I'll just throw it in here. That we can't look at this group and just accept it. 
we, we, we have to believe that this isn't as good as it gets, that it can get better, that there are others. Despite how good they are, despite when they play well, we always have to be looking at all positions for the possibility of somebody out there, either young or old, that emerges over the next couple of years and is better. We, I don't want to lock in with this group and this generation to a certain extent. Um, and it's not that they don't deserve credit uh, and that, they don't, that we shouldn't be excited about them, but let's not just have complete blinders and focus on this when there's the possibility out there. And it's okay to say that there could be something better. Interesting. Uh, the big one in England this weekend, Manchester City host Tottenham. No club has had more success against City in recent years than Tottenham. They've won five of the last seven Premier League meetings. We'll see what they can do here. And Spurs have faltered of late uh, after this incredible start. And so I think that there is a little bit of a concern and again, folded arms saying, okay, well, it started off well, but this is still a tall order, even for a Spurs team that is that is much better right now. Uh, where do they sit in the table? Number two versus five, right in the table. Yep. I'm. St- I mean, I think you're dumb to bet against Man City, even against this Spurs team and Man City playing home. I agree. Uh, a couple more games to hit. We go to Germany next. Uh, Leverkusen will host Dortmund. Leverkusen in first place, two points above Bayern, and 10 points above fourth place Dortmund. And we'll see about Gio. Didn't play at all in the Champions League, so you would think he would get some minutes in this one, but who the heck knows? You w- we don't talk about the bounce-back effect as much with Bundesliga as we uh, the EPL is constantly talking about, you know, when you play in Europe and then you have the weekend games and there's a letdown and all that kind of stuff. Because, as we mentioned before, Dortmund should be flying high given the result that they have. And now they come back and they have to go on the road um, against Leverkusen. So we'll see if if that type of effect happens. I wouldn't be so sure that just because he didn't play midweek, <laughs> that Gio starts this weekend. I, no, I agree. I, I, Edin Terzic does not rate him. He can say whatever he wants. It's very obvious. He does not rate him. Um, and then finally, big one in Spain, Barcelona will host Atletico Madrid. Both teams four points back of Real Madrid, but Atletico have played one fewer game. And amazingly enough, they are the team out of these two that's playing more attractive football this season. Griezmann has been phenomenal. Um, and, you know, João Felix is facing his parent club. He's on loan at Barcelona. He left Atletico, went to Barcelona ostensibly so he could go somewhere that suited his style more. But in his absence, Atletico have become a much more expansive team than anyone expected. Well, Barcelona this season has been much more pragmatic than anyone expected. So it hasn't quite worked out as João Felix would have hoped. He did score in the Champions League against Porto. We'll see what he can do here. But he's allowed to play against Atletico. He right? is allowed, yeah. Okay. The, uh... They did. They said, "Yeah, we'll we'll face you. We don't care." As a matter of fact, we have we in store. We have not only are we going to win, but we're going to win with style. Yes, something that we don't often associate with uh, Let It Go. But our friend Javi over there, uh, what, what what is is the bloom off the rose? As they say, it is somewhat. I don't think he's in any danger of losing his job. They're only because he's Javi. Well, they're only four points out of first place in La Liga, and they've advanced in the Champions League, which is a big deal because yeah. they got knocked out in the group stage the last two seasons. So results-wise, he's still okay. But as you know, Barcelona, it matters how you play, and especially when you hire somebody like Xavi, the idea is that he was going to get them back to playing the way they did when he was in Anybody the Anybody knows romance. It's, right. it's this guy. Yeah. So, All right. Well, we'll see if they can 
combine not only winning, but with uh, with romance going forward. You for know, it. I've been thinking about this lately. When that great Barcelona team emerged in the late 2000s under Pep playing tiki-taka football, and parallel to that, Spain emerged as a dominant national team mm-hmm. playing that same style with a lot of Barcelona players. We all viewed that as a Barcelona phenomenon that Spain was benefiting from, but it's proven to be a lot more enduring on the Spain side. Over the last 15 years, we've seen Barcelona, depending on who the manager is, who the players are, at times deviate from that style. While Spain never does, it's much more ingrained now as the Spanish national team's way of playing than it is with Barcelona. Well, could that be because as much as we talk about La Masia and the, you know, the Cruyff and the, the ideology and the style of play, there's still a limited pool that you have as opposed to Spain, which actually, if this is the way they want to play and they showed that it was successful— they can at least pick from multiple pots out there that qualify as those types of players. I think that's fair, yeah. yeah. Um, anything else before we go to a break? That is it. All right, let's take a break. And when we come back, we got some MLS action that is heating up on the weekend. Uh, so we'll give you a little preview of the semifinals that are coming. Don't go anywhere. Okay, welcome back. Uh, yeah, let's do a little preview of the MLS semifinals that are coming uh, our way this weekend. Down to four teams, single game elimination to decide who gets to go to Ohio, either uh, Cincinnati or Columbus, and play an MLS Cup final. So where should we start? Let's start with the Eastern Conference Finals. Cincinnati hosting Columbus. They split their regular season meetings, each side winning at home. No Matt Miazga for Cincinnati. He got himself suspended three games for that whole Mishagaz after the game two against the Red Bulls, where he apparently invaded the refereeing area and accosted the referees. So he's out for this game and would be out for MLS Cup as well. His season is over. Your thoughts on that? Wow. All right. So that's Defender of the Year. Correct. Matt Miazga, yeah. um, who we know made a poor decision, as my mom would say, and uh, is now paying the price for it. That it's three games, I think it's surprising to some. And again, we, we don't have all of the information, but obviously the MLSPA does not think that this is warranted in terms of uh, the three games. And it is three games for entering the referee locker room. I think the, the big question is, I guess, how threatening he actually was. And the videos that evidently MLSPA has seen that have been shown to them, in their view, this was not warranted. And ultimately, you know, whether you go in there and tell them you love them or not, you're, you're not supposed to go certain places. Players know this. Everybody understands, uh, understands this. So whether you're ranting and raving or not, it was still a boneheaded move by... Matt Miazga. I think he would, well, I don't know if he would admit that, uh, admit that or not, but that's what it ends, uh, ends up being. And uh, the reason why I say MLSPA is they actually came out with a statement, um, I guess defending Matt Miazga, but even more so saying that they're disappointed and are calling for punishment of the referees and their representation in the way that they ultimately framed this. So this is all drama behind the scenes. But ultimately, it means that Cincinnati has to continue on if they want to win MLS Cup, and they have to do it without a major part of their defense. Now, this matchup is known as the Hell is Real Derby. Not everybody knows why. Uh, I'm told you want to explain that to the folks. I, I just, it, I think it's worth reminding, you know, as we go through, and even though 
MLS is 30 years old. There are things that come by design and are, quote-unquote, manufactured. And there's other things that are kind of organic. And when Cincinnati came into the league, Columbus, we know, is one of the OGs, one of the original teams uh, from back in 1996. And rivalries have been and continue to be important. And finding them and fostering them from an MLS marketing perspective is a huge part uh, of their plan. So this one is called Hell is Real. Now, this was organic in that the good folks of Ohio on both sides of the equation when it comes to Columbus fans and um, Cincinnati fans, they know and they loved this, love this great state. And one of the things that you will find is that uh, if you it's 110 miles, the distance between Columbus and Cincinnati. And you take Interstate 71 in order to get there. And if you will go by a local farm that exists on this road, you will see that a farmer uh, has put out this sign. Now, we use it in the context of soccer. Uh, This was done, obviously, from a religious perspective. And evidently, over the years, he has different signs out there. But the hell is real sign has become iconic and has become like a, you know, a, a... the world's largest ball of yarn in that everybody sees it, everybody knows it, and it's representative in the best way possible of this state and this rivalry that now exists in the, in the state. And it, and it lends itself to all sorts of signs and headlines. And it's just, a, like I said, a wonderful naming of this rivalry that now, because Cincinnati has come on, has really taken force. And I am excited about this game because the environment that they create at that stadium in Cincinnati is second to none. It's wonderful. And Columbus Crew, I mean, that your biggest rival is standing in your way of getting not just to the MLS Cup, but the first time ever in your existence for, uh, for MLS Cup. I mean, can you imagine if Columbus goes down to Cincinnati and spoils the party for those Cincinnati, the Supporter Shield winners. And we know that only seven, eight of uh, the, the teams that have won Supporter Shield have also parlayed it and gone on into, uh, to win a Moss Cup. It's eight, Cincinnati looking to make it nine and go. looking to be the second straight to do it because LAFC accomplished that feat last year. Columbus looking to win their second MLS Cup in four years. We were there in 2020, the COVID year when they beat Seattle, remember? It would be their third MLS Cup overall. They also won in 2008. Columbus, obviously, counting on goals from Cucho Hernandez. They also have an emerging star in the midfield in Aiden Morris. Yeah, Aiden Morris is interesting. I remember watching him with the national team, and I, I, I just couldn't get it. But again, this is how players, both in terms of their technical ability, but also just physically kind of change and grow, especially as we talk about these young players. And we're getting them at a time where sometimes their bodies haven't even gotten to the point you know where there is a consistency of what they are what they are going to be but he is a huge huge part of of this team a a workhorse but even that's kind of disingenuous and, and disrespectful just to call him call him that because he's so much more than his work ethic and, and his ability is all over the field and if they are to get by cincinnati a huge part will come from kind of the unsung it's not unsung anymore but effort of someone like him Cincinnati, so much firepower. Brandon Vasquez, Bupenza, Barreal, and of course, MVP Lucho Acosta. We got an interesting Ask Alexi question regarding MLS MVPs. We'll tackle that in a minute. By the way, the winner of this matchup will host MLS Cup. So MLS Cup this year will definitely be played in Ohio. Uh, The Western Conference final pits defending champions LAFC 
hosting the Houston Dynamo. The Dynamo won both meetings this season. They were just days apart. One of them was a rescheduled game because of LAFC's CCL exertions. Uh, so what do you think? Uh, success in the regular season for the Dynamo. Can they do it here? This is so hard. And, it, you know, I because I think that, uh, yeah, I think that Cincinnati is going to beat Columbus at home and go to MLS Cup. And then I think LAFC is going to beat Houston. So both of the home teams, uh, I, I want to pick Columbus. But yeah, I just think that Columbus is still, you know, but okay. So I'm going to stick with uh, the home team. So Cincinnati and LAFC, you know, we talked about, you know, what LAFC has now been and Steve Torundo. I always think back to that first interview that I did with Steve Torundo, the head coach of LAFC, when he was first hired after coming from uh, Las Vegas. And I think the first question I asked him is, because he did not have a good result, uh, a record when it came to Las Vegas. Why are you the man for the job? And he said, because I'm the man for the job was basically his answer. I'm the best man for the job. And he has certainly proven that, uh, proven that right. And again, form is fallacy, my friend. Yeah, you were very aggressive in that interview with him, but he handled it well, and he's done tons of stuff with us since then, so he obviously didn't hold it against you, and he's obviously done a terrific I, job. I, you know, I have uh, you know, had plenty of conversations uh, with him, and, and I, I consider him a friend, but even when, a fr- even when I'm talking to a friend, I want to get down to the root. I want to ask questions that have substance, and I want to um, push back at times. And I think that that's a in that moment, that was a completely legitimate type of line of questioning when it came to uh, Steve Trundolo. And, and I love the fact that he defended himself, ultimately bet on himself, despite a really bad record when it came to what he was doing in Las Vegas. And there could be a million different reasons for that. And this is why last show I talked about Jim Curtin in the same way that it's been fun to see what Steve Trundolo has been with LAFC and all of these additional elements and um, much better players and much better facilities and resources and stuff like that, I would love to see someone like, as I said, Jim Tur- Jim Curtin uh, be in a situation like that to get the best out of him. We obviously had yet to see the best of Steve Terundolo, and we are seeing that now. Uh, again, Carlos Vela versus uh, Hector Herrera and all these different things. Ben Olsen has just done a tr- tr- tremendous job but they're going to need something special to come into uh, Los Angeles and find a way past this LAFC team. LAFC looking to become the first repeat MLS Cup winner since the Galaxy in 2012. Houston looking to become just the fourth team to win U.S. Open Cup and MLS Cup in the same season and the first since the Galaxy in 2005. That is it. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you send in your comments, questions, and concerns. And you can use those social media platforms out there. Keep in mind that our handle is SOTU with Alexi. Or you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. That is 657-549-2297. What do the folks want to hear on this episode, Mossy? Uh, a couple of questions on X. Uh, first up, why do a majority of these MVPs not play for their national team? Is it a testament to their actual national team? Surely the best player in the league can get at least a call-up. Um, I believe he's referring to MLS MVPs. The last four, Alejandro Pozuelo and Carlos Hill, both Spanish, and then Hani Mukhtar, German, and then this, this season, Lucho Acosta, Argentinian. None of them have ever made a senior international appearance for their countries. We've talked about how one of the last barriers for MLS in terms of global credibility is to have the elite nations call up MLS players based on their MLS form, not in spite of them being an MLS. I think you're getting there with Argentina, with Almada going to the World Cup. Alan Velasco got a call up recently. 
But I don't think you're quite there with Brazil yet or some of these big European nations. I mean, you're a proud MLS defender, big chip on your shoulder. Does it bother, <laughs> bother you with everything that Mukhtar has done the last few years, some of the issues Germany have had, that they haven't at least given him a look? That it's Germany does... Does it bother me? Yes, but that is journey. Germany does not surprise me in the least. I, I think that they, like England, look down their nose. No, wait, not as much as England, certainly look down their nose. I just think that this is a function of growth of MLS. So, if, you know, you mentioned the last four, but if you go back to the last 10, for example, um, you have this moment in time where MLS was signing bigger name players who were already kind of stars in their own. So you're talking about, you know, Robbie Keynes and Sebastian Jovinkos um, and David Villa, uh, even Joseph Martinez with Venezuela, Carlos Vela, even though, <laughs> even though his international career, uh, he, he stopped it, but that was something that he did by himself. And then you started to get into obviously younger and lesser known types of players that um, have kind of, not only started their their career, but have made their bones through MLS. And so there's there's nothing else to justify. And again, even though as far as MLS has come, as far as American soccer, North American soccer has come, there is still a stigma. And there are still coaches out there that either, well, mostly from afar, don't respect what MLS is or what MLS can be in terms of developing a, a player. Or they're just, they're scared of the heat and the blowback that might come if and when they're calling these, uh, these players in. So, you know, some of it is, again, is that stigma. Some of it is just justified because maybe they play for really, really good, good teams. But it's interesting. It, it is an interesting phenomenon to see. The other part of the equation, and this is my, you know, American uh, chip on my shoulder is that, uh, I mean, you have to go back a long time to find an American that, uh, was MVP, uh, of the, uh, of the league. And that's, you know, that's, that's understandable in terms of the quality that has been brought in. And we, as a country, I guess have failed to create those types of positions, those number 10s, those creative types that people associate oftentimes and oftentimes win awards. I think it has to do with the transfer strategy. I've uh, described it as MLS being a selling league when it comes to Americans and a buying league when it comes to foreign players. But I, I, but I wonder what a, and I know we, we throw out the numbers, right? A number 10 or whatever. A, 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 let's say a creative attacking midfielder slash forward. What that, um, if that was an American player, what that what that player would look like? What would that player have to do? Would that player have to go and do that outside in order to get the respect back home, or or not even just the respect? Let's let's even say the opportunity. And it is a sad state of affairs if a player like that has a better chance of fulfilling this destiny or this legacy of being an American number 10 by going outside of the United States and away from MLS than his own league in his backyard. And yet I fear that that is, that is the case. And we should say the irony of all this is that the award is named after Landon Donovan, an American. And yet, uh, to your point, recently no Americans have won it. Um, second uh, question on X. 
this is advancing a conversation we had in our previous podcast regarding a potential rule change, the sin bin, the penalty box, if you will. Um, if IFAB wants uh, sin bin penalties in soccer to be tested at higher levels, what's the best way you'd go about it? What rules slash regulations are needed to prevent 10 behind the ball defending for the whole penalty and slowing the game to a crawl? So first something, uh, by the way, thank you for the, uh, the question here. Are you, are you going to call it the sin bin? I, I, I want to call it the penalty box. The problem is in soccer, we actually have a penalty box. And so right. there could be some confusion, but whatever we're calling it uh, here, yes, you know, there are um, reactions to every action. And in this case, from a strategic perspective, in the same way that when you have a player go out for a red card, you adjust your formation, you adjust your posture. So if it was for 10 minutes, yes, the opposition would adjust that posture. And to throw it back to hockey, if and when there is a penalty and a player goes into the penalty box, the sin bin, the vast majority of that next few minutes is played in the team who received the penalties end the power play, if you will. And so this would be a power play. And as such, I think just psychologically, if I was on the team that was attacking, I would say, oh, we got a man advantage here. We need to take advantage of it. And we would do more things to go forward. And psychologically, if I was on the other team, I absolutely would pull, would pull back and absorb pressure and honestly, waste as much time as possible. And so, yeah, the devil is in the details. But I would push back and say, even if that happened, that doesn't necessarily make it bad. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to benefit and you're going to score a goal in that time. But it still puts more pressure. And therefore, it is a, it is a punishment on the opposition if and when that happens. I just realized, usually Sean Sullivan includes the name of the person that sent in the tweet in the rundown, he neglected to do so today. So I do want to give them some love. Okay, go. A guy named Cameron submitted the MLS MVP question. Thank you, Cameron. And Corey Clayton Thank uh, you, Corey. submitted this one. I mean, obviously, if you're watching us, you can see the graphic. But uh, it's okay. for those Listen, of you listening. We, you know, everybody likes a good pat on the back. And we talk so much about people sending in questions, comments, and we want to make sure that if and when you do that, that you get the proper respect that you deserve when it comes to that. So thank you, Mossy, for, uh, for thinking about that and, and uh, doing that. Anything else? That's it. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, as Mossy mentioned, we're going to talk about um, America as soccer innovators. Don't go anywhere. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Uh, we, even in the last segment and in our last show, we talked about this possibility of the sin bin, the penalty box coming. But really what we're talking about is innovation. Really what we're talking about is growth, evolution, progress uh, of, the, uh, of the game and changes in the game. And if and when you're talking about that, oftentimes you will get pushback. Uh, people will grumpy old man and women the the, uh, the situation and why are you changing the game? There's nothing wrong with it. Well, everything changes with time and everything moves on, especially when you're dealing with something that can, can incorporate technology and all sorts of other things uh, when it comes to the game. Uh, the good folks over there at, uh, at The Athletic have written an article that talks about how important and vital the American soccer culture and landscape over the years has been when it comes to innovations. And there's two ways of looking at this. One, you can see it as America 
voluntarily being the guinea pig. And in that sense, the danger is looking inferior to others because there's always this compare and contrast, Mossy, that we know between what we are doing on and off the field when it comes to our soccer relative to the rest of the world. Uh, The other way you can look at it is that America has been able to see around the corner and has been much further, uh, not just advanced, but open and progressive about the game and has invited the world to, that's not a great word, but use us to do things. And they have a wonderful graphic in this uh, Atlantic article that goes through all of the different changes over the years and talks about uh, and really shows you all the things. So I can go through it. Substitutions, for example. Uh, names on jerseys. Numbers on jersey fronts. Uh, dog so. Goalkeeping distribution. Timely goalkeeping distribution. Back pass uh, enforcement. Five substitutions. VAR. Injury and time wasting. And it goes through and it shows all of the past when leagues, this isn't just about MLS, this is leagues that have been around for, you know, uh, that have been in our history for multiple decades. So ASL, NASL, USISL, USL Championship, MLS Next Pro, all of these different things. And then shows when the rest of the world implemented. And time and time and again, America has been used, yes, as a guinea pig, but has come out the other side looking smart about what they have done. And this also doesn't even involve something like, you remember back in the uh, MLS's back era, back in the uh, pandemic era, when we were throwing everything against the wall, when MLS actually had the referees talking and announcing a la NFL, uh, and therefore you know, trying to give more um, context to the calls that they're making. Now, I think they got their, their knuckles wrapped for doing that at the time. But don't think for a second that at some point that is going to happen and referees are going to be not just mic'd up, but mic'd up with the ability to actually communicate with, uh, with, the, uh, with the public and with the audience out, out there. And again, it, it stems from things that are happening over here. So I look at this as a source of pride that my country is big enough. And I say big, not just in terms of size, just big in terms of our um, of our heart, and I think maybe even terms of our mind, to accommodate, and not only accommodate, but to welcome changes. And look, not all change is good. I can understand that. I can admit that. But this game is and will always be a work in progress. And it means that my kids, your kids, our kids, they will watch the game, they will participate in the game, and they will think about the game in a very, very different way than you did, Mossy, than I did, than I did, than in the same way that I think about the game very differently than previous generations. And that's just the passage of time, and that's just kind of handing it on to that next generation. And I, I, I am proud of the fact that, uh, uh, and the way that America, like I said, has been much more hospitable to change than others. Masi, anything before we go? A couple notes. Uh, Saturday on FS1, we have the Under-17 World Cup Final, Germany-France, followed by the Euro 2024 draw, which I know you're involved in in that show. Uh, Stu Holden is in Hamburg right now. He'll be bringing us interviews and reports from there. You'll be here in L.A. 
prepare accordingly, Hamburg. My yes. goodness, Stu Holden is among you. I do want to say, uh, today's show had a lot of moving parts, mm-hmm. this new setup, so I know I'm hard on them, but I do want to credit uh, folks like Aaron Schechter and Sean Sullivan, John Marcus, who handled the lighting. Uh, they did a great job. Today's show went off very smoothly. It, it looks great. It sounds great. Uh, look, there's only so much you can do about the talent, all right? You just got to you know deal with it. And they are pros at dealing with us. And that they can make us at least somewhat presentable to the world, that is a feat in and of itself. And as we say time and time again, we have incredible men and women that uh, it takes a village. And we got a very, very big and capable village behind the scenes making us uh, at least look presentable. Uh, and but, but, but when it really comes down to it, you know, it's the people that watch. It's the people that listen. It's the downloading and the rating and subscribing and all the different things that we, uh, that we do out there. And we continue to grow, uh, in terms of what we are bringing to you in terms of the content. And like we said, in terms of the quality of the content out there, but it doesn't mean anything unless people care about it. Uh, John, one more thing. Yeah, John Marcus, Aaron Schechter, in a good mood today because I'm told right before us, Keyshawn Johnson taped the podcast, USC legend. USC legend. Yes. yes. He is... Would he be the biggest USC legend? And then uh, was it no, no, number one <laughs> pick? Reggie's the biggest USC. He's bigger than OJ. And then Keyshawn played for the Jets, another one of Aaron Schechter's right. teams. So she spent a lot of years of her life, although Keyshawn was way before her time, but nevertheless. It's, you know, once a Trojan, always a Trojan, yes, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. We will talk to you again uh, next week. Enjoy all of the soccer this weekend. Uh, we, I think we did a good job of previewing all the great games that we, uh, that we have out there. Um, and until then... And as always, my friends, size the day.